1: and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ugambiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Alexei Navalny has spent the last two years locked up in a Russian penal colony in what can only be described as horrendous conditions. Now, faced with the prospect of new charges, he could be jailed for much longer. And we pay tribute to the mother of the miniskirt.
0: We should be able to resume the launch countdown any moment now.
2: The launch of SpaceX's Starship was one of the most highly anticipated space events for for years.
0: Don't walk away, that's for (laughs) sure.
2: (laughs) It had been scheduled originally for Monday, but quite late in the countdown there'd been what they call a scrub because of something frozen in the fuel tank.
1: Oliver Morton writes about science for The Economist and is the author of The Moon. A history of the future
2: then yesterday things seem to be going very well but again there was actually another brief pause yesterday where everyone's sort all of like held their breath
3: we're holding a t minus 40 seconds what we've heard so far is we have a couple of issues we're working one is the booster tank pressurization
2: and one imagines the flight controllers were cackling evilly as they toyed with the emotions of millions thousands actually down at the site and then we got the go-ahead for launch. A bit
3: different on and folks, If I can interrupt. Yeah. It looks like they're clearing all the flags and we're going to release at T minus 40 seconds.
1: It really was nail biting edge of your seat stuff as it passed those final seconds to launch, Ollie. Oh, yeah. You can
2: imagine in Hawthorne, California, where the headquarters are, or down at the Gulf, how it felt for those people who work at SpaceX and for the huge number of fans who just really are devoted to the idea of its success.
1: incredible to me, but Ollie, you're the expert. How impressive is it, really?
2: I think pretty incredible captures the essence pretty well. It's far and away the largest booster currently in production. It's got more power than the Saturn Vs that launched people to the moon in the 1960s. About 5,000 tonnes of spacecraft.
3: What a sight from the flying
2: at Twice the thrust of the Saturn 5 heading to space. 33 very powerful rocket engines arranged in a concentric, somewhat complex arrangement at the base, fire themselves up a few seconds before launch. And the idea of this thing that's the size of a decent sized skyscraper, just slowly building up the thrust to lift itself off that launch pad. And throw itself up into the air, and within two minutes, it's beyond the speed of sound and it's hitting into the stratosphere. It's quite the most extraordinary thing to watch. On the
1: vehicle the call out next to now. And it looked like everything was going OK. It was like those stereotypical pictures of rockets you see in children's books with these huge clouds of smoky matter underneath it. But what happened next?
2: Well, for the first couple of minutes, the only thing to worry about was the fact that some of the engines appeared not to be firing, and you could see that from the ground. But about two and a half minutes in, people began to feel a little bit leery because it was simply wobbling around a bit. And because it uses this strange new manoeuvre for separating the starship, the top part of the the spacecraft, from the super-heavy, the booster.
3: Beginning the flip for stage separation.
2: No one was quite sure what it was meant to look like, but fairly soon it became clear that separation between the two stages wasn't working as it was intended to, and that the rocket was tumbling as one great big object. John Innsbrucker, a, a space engineer who provides live commentary on the on the company's website during these launches, uh, delivered a technical understatement for the ages.
3: Have had separation by now. Obviously, this is uh, does not appear to be a nominal situation.
2: And a few seconds later, with the rocket clearly out of control, it exploded. One assumes this was what's called the flight termination system doing its job, and the debris fell down into the Gulf of Mexico.
1: So, it exploded. Does that still count as a successful launch?
2: Well, you know, as John Linz Booker might say, it's not optimal, but it's also not a complete failure. You do these things in order to learn stuff. At some point, you have to launch, and things seem to have gone wrong before the separation, maybe with the separation, but maybe with some problem with the engines, or maybe with some problem with damage to the pad, damaging some of those engines. The pictures of the pad afterwards made it look like... uh, Well, it made it look like the most powerful space rocket in the world had just taken off over a bunch of concrete that couldn't quite hack it. So these are the things that go wrong when you're trying these things. If it had exploded while it was on the pad, that would certainly have been a failure. If the Starship second stage had got into orbit, that would definitely have been a striking success. Here, you know, you can call it either way. Even if this test had succeeded beyond Elon Musk's wildest dreams, if everything had worked perfectly they still wouldn't have shown that this Starship system actually works. To do that, you have to show that you can land both components separately. And it's that, if it could be achieved, that would really transform the whole business of getting into orbit and beyond. How so? Well, the obvious thing about the Super Heavy and Starship, so Super Heavy being the booster, Starship being the pointy picture book bit on top, is that they're very large compared to other rockets. But the game-changing thing about them really is that they're designed to be highly reusable. SpaceX has already led the world in being able to reuse the first stage of its Falcon 9 rockets, and it reuses the fairings too. But to be able to reuse the whole system again and again on a routine basis, and what people aspire to is something like the system that's used for an airliner, that would be really different. And you're then down to the point that, as with an airliner, most of your marginal costs are consumed actually just as fuel. And, you know, the fuel, thousands of tons of liquid oxygen and liquid methane aren't cheap, but there as nothing compared to the cost that you have in the old days of launching a whole rocket and throwing it away in the process and never seeing it again.
1: Okay, but for all these possibilities, Elon Musk, SpaceX's owner didn't look too thrilled as he sat in the command control after seeing the um, the disassembly, let's call it.
2: <laughs> yeah, he didn't look thrilled, I must admit. I don't think that I or anyone else is particularly good at telling what mr musk's mood really is at any given time these are the things that happen i mean when they were building their first rocket the falcon one they had three launch failures in a row and the fourth launch test was going to be absolutely make or break for the company i and many other people were pretty convinced it would go the same way the first three did within a decade spacex is basically the dominant commercial spaceflight provider in the world. So a launch failure can be bad news for a space company. It seems to have pushed Virgin Orbit over the edge a few months ago when one of their launches failed. But They didn't have much margin to go on. SpaceX is a pretty big, moderately well-capitalised company. It's the second biggest unicorn in the world. It can afford to keep on developing these things. And in some ways, its competitor isn't so much the other space companies, but it's NASA, which is both uh, the only other organisation with a rocket anything like this powerful in its pocket at the moment, and SpaceX's collaborator in America's plans to get humans back onto the moon.
1: And so is it safe to say that SpaceX will have a go at another launch soon?
2: How soon they'll do it is a little open because we don't know how bad the damage to the launch pad was. It's conceivable they may have to do their next test launch from Florida instead of Texas, and that would be a big uprooting. But if they can use that launch pad again, and if they can find out what went wrong... They are building, they say, four or five of these boosters a year, six or seven of the starships a year. They're not building them just to see them sit around rusting in the warm, moist Gulf air. They're building them to fly them, and I think they will fly them as soon as they can.
1: So if they manage to iron out these issues and send a rocket into space, ideally one that doesn't explode, where will it be heading? The Moon, Mars, what are we talking?
2: The test flights are all going to be flights into Earth orbit. Once they've shown that they can do that, and once they've shown that they can refuel the Starship second stage once it's in orbit they're contracted to provide the landing services for NASA's missions to the moon. So NASA will send up astronauts in its own rocket, they will then transfer into a SpaceX starship and then they will go down to the moon. So Americans are not going to get back to the moon until SpaceX can make the starship work. In theory, according to NASA, they're going back to the moon in 2025, 2026. I think that they're probably going to be a good bit later than that. But SpaceX is built in at the moment to the nasa moon missions of course mr musk wants to go further he wants to go to mars and establish a new civilization there i'm not quite sure that starship is the right transport system to be doing that with but it's more like a rocket capable of going to mars than anything else anyone has ever built by a country mile so i certainly wouldn't bet against that in the decades to come
1: ollie thank you so much for coming on the show
3: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: In almost 25 years at the pinnacle of the Russian state, Vladimir Putin has continued to amass power and crush dissent. The Kremlin has long subverted the free press. But since the invasion of Ukraine, things have only gotten worse. Today, even Western media outlets aren't immune to persecution. Earlier this week, a Russian judge denied the appeal of the detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who appeared before a court caged in a glass box. It's an unjust spectacle that the Kremlin's opponents have become used to. The Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, has spent much of his time rallying against President Putin and was almost killed by Novichok poisoning in 2020. He was jailed in Russia the year after and is currently serving an 11 and a half year sentence. Soon, he may face new charges, which could extend his time behind bars. Even further.
3: So Alexei Navalny is in solitary confinement at a penal colony some 250 kilometers east of Moscow, serving prison sentence based on charges that would never have been upheld under an independent legal system. And he is pretty much in torturous conditions.
1: Arkady Ostrovsky is the Economist's Russia editor and the host of our podcast series Next Year in Moscow.
3: He's in a tiny cell and it's a punishment cell and people are not supposed to be placed there for more than a few days. Navalny's been there for months now and basically all Navalny can do is sit on this metal stool which is bolted to the floor.
1: So what do we know about Navalny's current condition? How's he doing?
3: So we don't know that much about his medical condition. All we know is that an ambulance had been called a few days ago. That set off alarm bells amongst his comrades and amongst his team. We know that he lost about eight kilos just in, in the past few days. That hasn't broken his spirit, but clearly his team is very worried. And people close to Navalny, who are now outside the country, communicating with him via his lawyers, suspect that he might have actually been poisoned.
1: And al do you think it's likely that he is being poisoned?
3: I don't think anything is impossible in Putin's Russia at the moment. It is entirely possible that an order to poison him has gone out, but we can't verify that. On top of the awful conditions in which he is kept, there is also a constant attempt to humiliate him and to suppress his dignity. But there is something much worse possibly coming, which is that The authorities have been working on a new case against Navalny, which would charge him with extremism and terrorism, basically turning him into terrorist number one. And that charge, that indictment would carry a sentence of 35 years in jail. So they're basically trying to turn Navalny into sort of a bin Laden uh, figure, telling him, abandon any hope, you're never coming out of this jail.
1: Is there anything that the rest of the world can do to help Navalny's case?
3: So publicity is the most important thing and the most threatening thing to any dictator. They like to operate, and Putin, more than anyone else, likes to operate in secret and and opaqueness. That's why Navalny was initially poisoned with Novichok, which Putin hoped would never be discovered. It would be sort of a mysterious death. So attention and throwing light on things is, is important because... Even though Putin is a dictator, accused of war crimes, he still needs legitimacy of some kind amongst the Russian people. Because if the sympathy of the people shifts to the other side, shifts to Navalny, then actually it does become a lot more problematic for Putin to prosecute him and to persecute him the way he has been doing. So publicity does matter, even in a dictatorial, tyrannical system that Russia is because the actions of the president need to be seen by the majority of population as having some justification whatever that is
1: Now beyond Navalny's case tell us a bit more about the bigger picture of the state of resistance in Russia is there any open resistance left
3: We don't see large protests on the Russian streets Russia is a police state it's a militarized police state and the state is very heavily armed and If there was any doubt before the war, there is certainly no doubt now that Putin is prepared to use lethal force against his own people. This said, resistance inside the country does continue. In our series in the next year in Moscow, we've spoken to a lot of people who continue to do work inside Russia. And some people were brave enough to talk on the record To me, one of the most special episodes of this whole eight-part series was our previous episode about a human rights lawyer, extraordinary woman called Maria Aisman, who continues her human rights work in Russia, defending the victims of political repression in Russia. She is the one who is defending Vladimir Karamurza, an opposition figure, former journalist, who has just been handed a sentence of 25 years, quarter of a century. In Russia, for what the Russian state calls a treason, and what in fact is an act of patriotism and opposition to this murderous war. So, despite all the difficulties of speaking out against the war in Russia and all the great risks that people who do so face, people do continue to speak out and they do continue to resist.
1: I mean, resistance in any meaningful way must seem like an impossible task. Arkady, I know you've met and talked with Navani before. How do you think he might be coping right now?
3: He is coping by keeping up his faith, which is what took him into that cell. When Navalny went back to Russia on the 17th of January 2021, he knew what was awaiting him. He knew he was most likely going to end up in that jail and he was prepared for it. And what keeps him going is his spirit and his faith in the fact that time is on his side, and history, more importantly, is on his side. It's his moral superiority. And, of course, we hope that Navalny will persevere, that he will keep up that spirit, will keep up that hope of a different Russia, because it's not just the Russian people who depend on it. The peace in Ukraine depends on it. And, actually, security of a lot of people in Europe and the world depends on on his success, his survival, and the chance of Russia becoming a peaceful country.
1: Arkady, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. On The Economist's latest series next year in Moscow, Arkady Ostrovsky looks at the future of Russia. In tomorrow's eighth and final episode, we'll dive into a full examination of Alexei Navalny's stories so far and the influence he exerts on Russian politics with stories from within his prison cell told by the people who know him. Episodes one to seven are available to listen to now. To find them, search for Next Year in Moscow wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: If you wanted to be a really trendy teenager around 1960, you would want to be wearing Mary Quant.
1: Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor.
0: And if your parents wouldn't buy them for you, as they almost certainly wouldn't, then you'd make them yourself. Most of us made our clothes back then. So you would go to the draper's shop, get the enormous Butterick pattern catalogue down, have a look, and at the back there were these neat, sleek shifts and tunics, pretty short and in bright colours, and this was exactly what you wanted. So you bought your fabric, which itself was in a pretty violent shade of scarlet or kingfisher blue or aubergine colours, not exactly the same as those your mother wore, and you cut it all out put it together, and then you could stride down the street, having put on coal round your eyes, and with luck, put on some boots as well. And then you strode out and felt most incredibly modern. Mary Quant herself did a lot of cutting out on the floor of her bedsit, where she was living at the time. She had opened up a shop called Bazaar in the King's Road in Chelsea, which sold her designs, and they were extraordinary for the time. Broad stripes, big polka dots, everything in bright, jazzy colours. A lot of things were made out of men's clothing material. As she shut the shop at night, with all the stock pretty well sold out each time, she would take the money off to Harrods and buy men's suiting so that she'd then make tunics for women out of grey flannel, and these sold wonderfully in her shop. She also sold miniskirts, and it was these that she was most famous for eventually. And was selling them to very enthusiastic customers down in Chelsea. She thought herself that Chelsea girls had the best legs in the world, and she was designing explicitly for them. And it was these girls who were telling her, make them shorter, make them shorter. She turned the look into mini pants, which became hot pants later. Crutch-hugging shorts that drove men completely mad. And this shop bazaar that she had opened became notorious for this sort of thing. There were big plate glass windows where the models were sometimes upside down or riding motorbikes or sprayed white, looking in every way disreputable and She liked to tell the story of city gents going past and shouting immoral and disgusting and beating their umbrellas on the window. So it was a shop that was never out of the fashion magazines and always setting the pace. She had been interested in fashion almost all her life when she thought about it. At the age of five or six, she disliked the clothes she inherited from a cousin and started making her own clothes out of bedspreads. When she went off to school, she quite liked the tunics and uniforms she had to wear, but she could bake them even better, so she would shorten them or redesign them. She promised her parents that she would study illustration and went off to Goldsmiths College, but she was much more keeping an eye on fashion. Not on Paris fashion, because she couldn't care less about that, but actually on everything around her. And as she walked around, she often gathered things that caught her eye, like leaves or screws dropped on the ground, little bits of ribbon or mesh, or even rubber doorstops, she used to say, could be quite inspiring if she could think of some way to use the shapes or the colours. She thought of fashion as something of a disguise. It was a tool to get her through life. She was extremely shy, in fact, although it seemed to run counter to her very bold designs. When she started her makeup range, she had in mind theatrical makeup that you'd put on like a mask or using your face like a canvas to cover it with paint. So clothes and makeup remained something that she did hide behind but then conversely she thought that fashion could often anticipate the way the world was going it could be an announcement of how things were going to be after all when she had opened her first shop England or Britain had just been emerging from the war it was a grey place it was full of bomb sites and fogs and yet with her fashion she predicted how the next decade the 1960s was going to look Her shop immediately seemed something alive and futuristic and she loved fashion for that power to anticipate what would happen. She was also very pleased to note that her fashions helped to liberate women. This was part of the thinking behind them. She wanted her clothes to be short and sleek and simple so that women could really move in them so that they were suitable for the normal activities of life and especially for leaving the house and getting a job and having to run for the bus as she said you couldn't run for the bus in a Dior dress
1: I think a revolution was going on which uh, fashion people hadn't realised I think the change of focus had gone from the rich international couture thing to the young working girl herself. She was going to sort of set the pace in fashion, decide what was right and what was wrong, and not wait for the gutter and imitate what the rich few did in Paris.
0: Women really did feel empowered by the clothes that she produced, and certainly I did as a teenager myself.
1: Anne Rowe on Mary Quant, who has died at the age of 93. all for this episode of The Intelligence the show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin and our sound engineer is Will Rowe our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway, our creative producer is William Warren our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste Kevin Caners, Barkley Bram and Sarah Larniuk with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa We'll all see you back here on Monday.
3: GEP AI Powered Digital Transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com